Good evening. Biden announces 100 million shots, fallout from the murders of Asian people in Atlanta, and baseball is back in New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with some of the news for Thursday, March 18th, 2021. President Joe Biden announced today the United States will reach a goal of 100 million vaccinations tomorrow, more than a month ahead of schedule. And I'm proud to announce that tomorrow, 58 days into our administration, we will have met my goal of ministering 100 million shots to our fellow Americans. That's weeks ahead of schedule. And even with the setbacks we faced during the winter storms. So here's where we are today. Eight weeks ago, only 8% of seniors, those most vulnerable to COVID-19, had received a vaccination. Today, 65% of people aged 65 or older have received at least one shot. And 36% are fully vaccinated. And that's key, because this is the population that represents 80% of the well over 500,000 COVID-19 deaths that have occurred in America. And as President Biden, and with a growing proportion of Americans on tap to get the shot, the United States can now consider loaning vaccines to Canada and Mexico. The White House announced earlier today it's sending 4 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to both countries, the first export of a vaccine. The news comes as the European Union announced today the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't increase the overall incidence of blood clots and the benefits of using it outweigh the possible risks. More than a dozen nations around the world had suspended their use of the vaccine over the past week after reports of the clots. The European Medicines Agency responded that scientific data shows the vaccine is safe and effective. The World Health Organization previously said it saw no evidence the vaccine was to blame for the clots. And as the United States and the world struggles to vaccinate hundreds of millions of people in an attempt to stop the pandemic, a spotlight of sorts is being directed at the failures of the United States healthcare system. While most developed countries and many underdeveloped ones have nationwide free health care systems, the United States is alone in having a system based on employer contributions. Developed after the Second World War, the United States health care system's biggest weakness became evident when 22 million people lost their jobs at the start of the pandemic. More than 9 million people are jobless today. According to a report released today by the watchdog Public Citizen, called Unprepared for COVID-19, How the Pandemic Makes the Case for Medicare for All, it shouldn't have been a surprise when the pandemic in the United States exploded. The author of the report is public citizen healthcare advocate Egan Kemp. So many different players in the healthcare system profit off of the healthcare system. And the, the biggest way that they do that is sort of the, the insecurity that Americans feel in the healthcare system. So most Americans are just so desperate to cling to whatever insurance they've got, uh, even if it's not great, because at least they know they've got something. When employers try to figure out sort of each year what they can afford for their employees and when employees try to figure out you know what jobs to take it really impedes their ability to plan the companies that make so much money off of whether it's insurers whether it's hospitals they're the ones that give the most money to politicians and then sort of lobby them heavily and you have a system that's full of gaps full of loopholes they exploit them to make profit what did you find out tell me about your report the other findings in your report 
the biggest finding really is that desire for profit in the healthcare system perverts all of the incentives across the healthcare system. So whether it's employer-sponsored insurance, whether it's private insurers, whether it's for-profit hospitals or non-profit hospitals, even things like long-term care where we don't even have sort of a nationwide system, it's all ties back to really the desire to create profit through getting as much out of consumers as you can while providing them as little care as possible. And so that profit over patients and corporations over community define our healthcare system. And it's the reason we pay the most for healthcare, but have the worst outcomes because so many folks are taking their cut in the healthcare system as opposed to comparably wealthy countries that have a coherent healthcare system that can move more quickly and covers everyone, you know, cradle to grave. Like Mexico, paragon of rich country. If you just have to look at some of the countries, you know, even countries like Taiwan and New Zealand, they're not nearly as wealthy as we are, but they were able to control things much better. And even some of the European countries that didn't react as quickly, their healthcare system was able to take up a lot of the slack and sort of make up for sort of the failures of their leaders. Whereas our healthcare system... We had failed leadership in the Trump administration and then a failed healthcare system that really never was able to take up the slack and still hasn't caught up. And that's why we have 20% of, of the deaths and 25% of the cases, but only about 5% of the world's population. Where do we go from here? Until Americans experience something different, it's really hard to even imagine it being easier. I'll tell you the thing that radicalized me on healthcare was living in Canada for two years and finding out how easy it could be to get the healthcare that you needed and not have to fight every step of the way, not have to fill out tons of forms, not have to fight every bill or figure out if you got the right bill. You just went and got healthcare. And I hear similar stories of people radicalized by you know spending various times in, in Australia or London or any other country that has an actual healthcare system. And where we go from here is, is really a growing movement for Medicare for all. We're going to need the largest support in Congress. We're going to need the largest grassroots movement because we're, we're coming up against companies with billions of dollars that are going to throw as much money as they can to keep the system in place. We had a record number of original co-sponsors on the Medicare for all legislation in the House introduced this week. The movement is growing and the pressure in Congress is growing. Egan Kemp is healthcare advocate for Public Citizen. In the report, Kemp suggests a wealth tax could fund a Medicare for All plan. The plan, by the way, is available on the Public Citizen website. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, at a hearing before the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties, U.S. lawmakers, professors, and actor Daniel Day Kim said the Asian American community was reeling from a year of heightened anti-Asian attacks in a congressional hearing held just days after the killing of six Asian women in Georgia. Kim laid out some of the names of Asian people who have been assaulted and killed. Vichiratanapati murdered. Pak Ho murdered. Noel Quintana face slashed with a blade from ear to ear. An 89-year-old woman set on fire. Tadataka Ono, a professional jazz pianist beaten so badly he can no longer play piano. And now seven Asian people shot dead in Georgia two days ago, six of whom were women. These are only a few of the 3,800 reported incidents since last March. I was speaking to a pollster during the recent elections and I asked him why, when I see polling results broken down by race, do I so rarely see Asian Americans as a separate category? He heard my question, he looked me dead in the eye, and he said, because Asian Americans are considered statistically insignificant. Statistically insignificant. 
Statistically insignificant literally means we don't matter. Actor Daniel Day Kim. According to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, hate crimes against Asian Americans have risen by 149 percent in 16 major cities compared with last year. Experts have linked the surge to the COVID-19 pandemic, which originated in China after some Americans, including Republican former President Donald Trump, started calling the coronavirus, the China virus, the China plague and even Kung flu. A 21-year-old white man has been charged with killing eight people, six of them Asian women, at three spas in the Atlanta area on Tuesday. Police are investigating motives and haven't ruled out the possibility the attacks were provoked, at least in part by anti-immigrant or anti-Asian sentiments. One witness testified anti-Asian violence has a long history in the United States that the pandemic has exacerbated. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the president isn't going to comment until the facts are in, but she laid the blame anyway at the feet of the former president. I wanted to be very clear because there's an ongoing FBI investigation, right? And he didn't want to attribute motive. There are law enforcement authorities who do that. I and mean, it's important to note when the investigation is concluded or not. So that was a, a bar he was attempt working to respect there. I think there's no question that some of the damaging rhetoric that we saw during the prior administration, blaming, you know, calling COVID uh, the Wuhan virus or other things, led to perceptions of the Asian American community that are inaccurate, unfair, have raised, has elevated threats against Asian Americans. And we're seeing that around the country. That's why even before the events of horrific events of last night, he felt it was important to raise this issue, elevate it during his first primetime address, why he signed the executive order earlier in his presidency. And he will continue to look for ways to elevate and talk about this issue. And as White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, another witness before the House today was Stanford University law professor Shirin Sinar. She says the answer is not in more law enforcement. Whatever the motive, those murders have traumatized Asian-American communities already reeling from a year of persistent hate violence. For one thing, many incidents of hate speech targeting Asian-Americans do not qualify as criminal, but they still create significant harm. In addition, many victims do not report incidents to police because of mistrust of law enforcement. And concern around over-policing and mass incarceration has led many in communities of color to consider other avenues to help victims heal, hold perpetrators accountable, and prevent violence. There is also growing interest in exploring forms of restorative justice to address hate crimes especially with respect to young offenders and relatively less serious offenses. Restorative justice refers to processes that bring together people affected by an offense to address the harm and agree upon mechanisms to repair it. And that's Professor Shirin Sonar of Stanford University. Peace activist Christine Ahn is part of the group Korea Peace Now. She's holding a webinar tonight at the group's website on the connections between U.S. foreign policy in Asia and racist attacks against Asian people here. Ahn says the attacks against Asian peoples predate Trump's racist statements, attempting to blame the coronavirus on Asian people, and are rooted in America's growing military confrontation with China. And she gives Trump one kudo his meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. I think it's important to take a feminist intersectional approach that actually says it's not just one or the other, but that it is actually 
a number of factors. And I would also add it is it is misogyny. And I would definitely add the racism component to it that is fueled by Trump's Wuhan virus or Kung flu. Also, the hawkish rhetoric that it goes beyond Trump. It was obviously a longstanding issue. I often refer to the first U.S. Sino war was the Korean War. The U.S., especially starting with the Obama administration, has had a pivot to Asia where the U.S. is trying to move the majority of U.S. bases over there. It is a very toxic cocktail when you have a situation of somebody that is hypersexualizing Asian women and views them as in a dehumanizing way, has access to guns. It's so important for Americans to understand that this is very much tied. The anti-violence that we see today is very much tied to U.S. foreign policy, whether it's the hawkish rhetoric against China, against North Korea, but it's also the long history of U.S. imperialism across Asia and the Pacific. When we can indiscriminately drop nuclear bombs on hundreds of thousands of Asian people in Japan, if we can do testing, we can drop hundreds of thousands of bombs on the Korean Peninsula, we can splatter napalm and Agent Orange across innocent lives, children, women, elders, like, what do you think that's going to do, not just to the soldiers that actually have to commit that violence, but what does that do to Americans' perceptions of Asian people or Muslim people or people in the Middle East? This is the process of what militarization does to dehumanize one another, to other um, people that are not white. This is part of the legacy of U.S. imperialism. What we do over there has a long trail back to this country is just such an important link to be making in this window to tie the anti-Asian violence to the long history of U.S. imperialism and war in Asia and the Pacific. Has there been a change in posture or policy between the last administration and this administration? I wouldn't undermine the significance of a standing U.S. president going to meet a North Korean leader. I think that is important. I think that must be done. We don't make peace with our friends. We make peace with our enemies. The problem with the Trump administration's policy was it maintained maximum pressure, the sanctions, the war exercises, provocative rhetoric. So we were hopeful that the Biden administration would come forward. Biden promised to build back better. He he talked about the pain of the Korean division, you know, and so we all had our optimism. And so far, what we're seeing from the State Department, the Biden administration's trip to South Korea is their commitment to denuclearize North Korea. And that is just absolutely a broken, failed policy. It has not achieved any advances in U.S. foreign policy goals of achieving North Korea's denuclearization or improved human rights. That's why 71 Korean American leaders sent a letter to Biden, celebrities, academics, artists, community organizers urging him to end the Korean War. This is absolutely insane. It is going to be crucial that we try to have a peaceful Korean peninsula to neutralize and mitigate the tensions between the U.S. and China. And again, back to the anti-Asian violence, we have to see the link of how hawkish rhetoric against China and North Korea is fueling so much of this anti-Asian violence back at home. 
Christine Ahn is founder of Women Cross DMZ and coordinator of Korea Peace Now. And a letter on the website Action Network is asking for a community-centered response to violence against Asian American communities. The letter says, in part, we must be guided by a lens of community care that prioritizes coordinating resources to address misogyny, white supremacy, systemic racism that is at the core of violence against immigrant and black communities. And tomorrow, Friday, March 19th at 6 p.m., the Asian American Federation is sponsoring a peace vigil at Union Square at 14th Street in Manhattan to reduce racism, xenophobia, anti-blackness, Islamophobia, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and other ugly forms of hate that seek to divide our communities. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In New York City, Mayor de Blasio and First Lady Shirlane McRae announced a city program to provide nearly $4 million in mental health services to Asian Americans to help counter hate crimes. The project connects community-based groups to telemental health services provided by New York City Health and Hospitals. The First Lady had this to say. This year, our communities of color have needed that kind of support more than ever. They have seen more death, felt more grief, They have lost homes and jobs. They have been subjected to hate, harassment, and violence. And they have gone through it all while already being underserved in so many ways. Communities Thrive is about bringing the support people need closer to where they live, to a familiar setting. We will help 30 community-based organizations team up with health and hospitals taking advantage of the massive telemental health support system Health and Hospitals has created over the past year. Community-based organizations will be able to refer their clients directly into the Health and Hospitals program. A few months ago, I visited one of the Korean Community Services locations in Queens. They speak the language, they know the family histories, and they have real relationships with parents and children. These community organizations are key to providing the kind of safe spaces where the most important conversations about mental health can begin without stigma. New York City's First Lady, Shirlane McRae. The city has experienced 10 incidents classified as anti-Asian hate crimes by the NYPD since the beginning of the year. And in New York's fight against COVID-19 pandemic, New York City announced this week more than 2.8 million vaccine doses have been administered. The city also announced it's opened up vaccine distribution to people who are homebound. But WBAI's Jillian Jonas reports outreach in some of the city's poorest communities could be much better. For several weeks, Mayor de Blasio has talked about the formulation and implementation of a COVID vaccination program for homebound seniors. At a recent daily briefing, the mayor indicated the program is also intended to include the disabled who are homebound. However, this information apparently is not widely known amongst members of the disabled community. When asked about the outreach to one of the city's poorest populations, exacerbated by the pandemic, de Blasio admitted the city must do more to educate these at-risk residents, but that there is a time frame to work out the details for accomplishing the complex logistics involved. Uh, All over the city to reach folks with disabilities. I think you're exactly right. There's more we need to do to let people know that uh, the homebound vaccinations are available. Now, what we know about the homebound vaccinations, and I, I thank everyone at the FDNY and Department for the Aging who's doing this work. It is very 
um, labor-intensive and painstaking because you have to send a team of people to an individual home or apartment, and it takes time, obviously, including the waiting period after the vaccine. So it means it will take weeks. We, our goal is to get all this done with anyone homebound by uh, through March and into April. De Blasio emphasized accessibility in terms of making more locations available. At this Monday's briefing, the mayor said there is now a dedicated section for the homebound to sign up for vaccinations. However, this reporter found some digging was required on the Department of Health website to identify where the section is actually located. Also in attendance was Commissioner of the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities, or MOPD, Victor Calise, who explained his office has been involved since the beginning of the pandemic with an, quote, extensive outreach plan, dispatching information to its network of advocates and relevant organizations. He said the office routinely receives feedback from the disabled community to glean unforeseen issues, but with the exception of determining seating might be necessary at centers, providing protective equipment and some digital work, he spoke mostly in general terms. Moreover, it remains unclear exactly what role the city's Department for the Aging will play in the coordination of a population not under its jurisdiction. On a related note, one of New York City's most vociferous disability activists, Edith Prentice, has died. It was disclosed on Wednesday. A longtime resident of Washington Heights, Edith relied on a wheelchair, which never stopped her advocacy work on accessibility issues for everyone, especially on transportation access. She was 69. Edith was my friend and most certainly will be missed. For WBAI News, I'm Jillian Jonas. Thanks, Jillian. In related news, despite the words of caution, Governor Andrew Cuomo is using his broad executive powers to order major reopenings this month, despite criticism from Mayor Bill de Blasio, who says the city may not be ready. Governor Cuomo said today spectators who have been vaccinated or have had a negative COVID-19 test will be allowed to attend in-person sporting events and outdoor concert venues in coming days. The announcement means the New York Yankees and New York Mets will be allowed to have a limited number of fans in attendance for opening day next month month. The outdoor sporting events will be limited to 20% capacity. Fans must have been vaccinated to attend and COVID testing will also be in place. The numbers are coming down. We have to start to move forward. Sports travel. Currently travel for sports is limited to contiguous counties and regions. Starting next Monday, March 29th, statewide travel for sports and recreational activities will be performed. Okay. Second, outdoor performing arts. Starting April 1, 2,500 plus capacity venues, live concerts, shows can open at 20% capacity. But as those numbers keep coming down, which we believe they will, you'll see the capacity numbers go up. The move comes as New York State has administered about 7 million vaccinations and more than 12% of the population has been vaccinated so far. Various sports bigwigs and stars were in attendance at the governor's news conference, including former Yankee star CeCe Sabathia and a natural rival, Mets vice chair Andy Cohen. Governor Cuomo likened baseball to politics. It's great to hear Randy talk about how you can have both a rivalry, uh, but a commonality. Frankly, I wish we had more of that in politics, <laughs> you know, where you can have a difference of opinion. 
but you can share a commonality and a decency, and we have that. We have that here. Uh, I don't want to start any trouble. Uh, CC is very big in person. Uh, <laughs> that he <but> is. <laughs> I don't want to start any trouble with my good friends from the Bronx, but I'm very happy our governor is a Mets fan. <laughs> And that is Andy Cohen of the Mets. Randy Levine, who's the chairperson of the New York Yankees, was also in attendance. But over in City Hall, Mayor de Blasio and his health staff were not happy with some of Cuomo's pronouncements, especially an order allowing certain boutique gyms and yoga studios to reopen. It's just troubling to me that our healthcare team has said very clearly, this is not what they would have done. And the state just doesn't care. I put out a statement and said, we're going to do our best to implement this rule safely because the state has the legal right to do it. But it's not what we would have done. On top of it, I want to ask a question. Is this being done because of what the data and science is telling us, or is this being done for political reasons? Because it sure as hell looks like a lot of these decisions are being made by the governor because of his political needs. Mayor de Blasio and a majority of New York voters do not believe Governor Andrew Cuomo should be impeached amid allegations of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior leveled against him in recent weeks, according to a Quinnipiac University poll released today. But the poll also shows Cuomo's job approval and favorability ratings sinking to historic lows. And finally, the political rancor today wasn't limited to dueling press conferences in New York. In the United States Senate, Kentucky Republican Rand Paul had yet another run in with Dr. Anthony Fauci over the effectiveness of wearing masks. Paul called masks ineffective against the coronavirus and primarily worn as a show by politicians. He got a lot of pushback from Dr. Fauci. It doesn't exist after the two-week period after the second vaccination. You're not hearing what I'm saying about variants. We're talking about wild-type versus variants. And what, now, proof re- there, what proof is there that there are significant reinfections with hospitalizations and death from the variants? None in our country. Zero. Well, because we don't have a prevalent of a variant yet. We're having one. Can I finish? We're well, having one one seven that's becoming you're more dominant. Policy based on conjecture. No, you it, have the. It isn't based on conjecture. So you some you want people to wear a mask for another couple of years. No, you've been vaccinated and you parade around in two masks for show. There's no science behind it. Well, let me just state for the record that masks are not theater. Masks are protective. And we have immunity there, theater. If you already have immunity, you're wearing a mask to give comfort to others. You're not wearing a mask because of any sign. I, I totally disagree with you. And that is Dr. Fauci totally disagreeing with Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul. And that's some of the news for Thursday, March 18th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.